0: What's up everybody? This is Cortland from indiehackers.com and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses stick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to John O'Nolan, the founder of Ghost. John, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here and to see you uh, in person this time yeah, around. Yeah, you're a real person. I know, incredible. So we're recording this um, in person at my apartment in San Francisco. Uh, what brings you to SF, John? Why are you here? <laughs> uh, well, I was here to have a meeting at
1: Stripe. Um, and when I said that at immigration yesterday, the uh, the officer who was there, usually they question me about, like, why have you been to Egypt? Why have you traveled so much? <laughs> and uh, this time I got a 10-minute grilling on when Stripe's IPO. because really? I've, I've heard it's going to be by the end of the year. Like so, my immigration officer was convinced that I knew something he didn't. I think he wanted insider trading or something. Wow, pretty wild. I was like, this is this is like something straight out of HBO. Yeah. You know, like when he goes to the doctor and the doctor's pitching him a startup on Silicon Valley, felt exactly like that. I was like, this can't be real.
0: Only in the Bay Area will the immigration officers grill you about tech IPOs. Yeah.
1: Almost too good to be true. But yeah, no, I had a, had a couple of meetings at Stripe
0: and that was fun. And so uh, yeah, good, nice to get a chance to meet you in person. Yeah, so you are, as I mentioned, the founder of Ghost. You've been on the podcast before, but that was two years ago. A lot has happened since then. Sure You've recently released Ghost 3.0. Why don't you walk us through sort of a whirlwind tour of the early days of Ghost just so people can catch up if they haven't heard the story before.
1: Yeah, so um, the lightning recap. Uh, I used to be one of the second heads of design at WordPress on the open source product. And uh, after WordPress started moving to be more of a, a generic website builder, I set up Ghost as a, a nonprofit open source publishing platform built with modern technology, so Node.js, and uh, focused solely on publishing, not on any other use cases. And it started out as a blog post, turned into a Kickstarter campaign, and then launched in 2013 with a sustainable business model. So it's, a, it's an open source product. But you can buy managed hosting directly from us, and that's how we fund the nonprofit organization that has done very well since then. So our revenue today, uh, available on Indie Hackers, is one point eight three million a year. Crazy. I think And annual recurring revenue. I think last time I was uh, on the show it was
0: seven hundred about yeah. yeah. So you've like more than 700K. doubled your yeah. revenue in the last two years. Which. Yeah. I imagine that's been a whirlwind journey, or has it been slow and steady and, and uneventful? Uh, pro- more slow and steady, I would say. The
1: the trajectory of revenue growth. Since the last time we talked, has only changed once, and not in a really big way. But it's been very predictable throughout. There's been no major kind of crazy inflections or business points. Just been slow and steady, healthy growth, and um, trying to make good decisions.
0: What about your life personally? Because I think when someone's earlier on in their company, they have all sorts of visions and predictions about how much their life's going to change once they hit 10k or 50k or 200k (laughs) a month in revenue. How much is the reality different from what you thought it would be like?
1: That's a good question. I think uh, it's both different and the same in equal and opposite ways. It's um, So you you always have this delusion, no matter what stage of a company you're at, that things are going to get easier right around the corner. Like, I just need to hire two more people for these oh, yeah. positions, or I just need to get to this revenue milestone, and then things are going to get easier versus now. And the reality is that you you those things you thought would get easier do, and you didn't account for the... 10 other new things which are not easy that have now arrived. Uh, so things never get easier, they just change and evolve and you have different problems at different um, stages of your personal career and your your company's size. So it's it's just a, it's an ever-shifting journey and it's always interesting but it, it, I don't think it ever gets any easier and even now i have the delusion that after you know a few more hires and key positions yeah. things will be easier for me and i'll have more time but i'm increasingly beginning to think that's not the case
0: <laughs> yeah i have the, the same thing like right now i'm thinking about the indie hackers podcast backlog and yeah. how in another few weeks it'll be much bigger than it ever has been and It'd my be life's going to be so yeah it's going to yeah. be great i'm going to be relaxing Second every vacation. day yeah has no. never happened before you'll take
1: on three more projects
0: <laughs> probably because <laughs> of all your extra time yeah so it's uh, kind of like we do it to ourselves, in a way. Oh, we just always push ourselves to a some, A lot of it's
1: self-inflicted, for yeah. sure.
0: So I think we should start here by talking a little bit about Ghost's business model. You mentioned that it's non-profit. And I, I'm really curious about Basically, what that says about you as a person because I've only had one other founder on the podcast who runs a non profit The vast majority of founders run for profit businesses, but I think to even dive into that, we just need to to talk a little bit about what it means to be non profit in general so yeah, uh, what does it mean to be a non profit what can you do that other companies can't and what can't you do that other companies can
1: That's a good one, yeah it's um Definitely the, the biggest point of confusion. Usually when I tell people, go okay, so to nonprofit, first question's what's that? And the second question is why on earth would you do that? Those are exactly my questions. Yeah. <laughs> so um, a nonprofit is ostensibly the same as any kind of for profit normal Company with one major difference, which is there's no share capital. And no share capital means that nobody owns the company. The company's independent, an independent entity, which is stewarded by trustees and a uh, consult board of directors, but no one no one owns any part of the business. So no part of the business can be bought or sold. And um, none of the because none of it is owned or by any particular shareholder, none of the profits can be distributed to those people. Mm-hmm. So company exists by itself. No one owns it, no one can buy it, no one can sell it. And any money that the company makes stays inside the company and must be distributed through whatever the goals of the company are. In our case, that's um, fostering journalism, open source, and education around all of those subjects. So we can only spend money on those things. And if I get tired of this whole thing at some point, um, I can retire, but I have nothing to sell. So someone else can take over. But there's no big payday for me.
0: So I think that's probably... The number one reason why a lot of founders don't start a nonprofit is yeah. they want a big payday. Definitely.
1: Yeah, that's all of the things I just said are not attractive to a lot of people. But it gives you, it gives you a different platform from which uh, to make decisions. And that's the reason for why we do it. Is If you're building a company, eliminating the idea that you could one day sell it to um, Microsoft or Google for a billion dollars, how does that affect the decision making of how you structure a company, how you structure a team, what type of product you build, who it's for, whether or not it's sustainable or not. If you're building something that you're going to be stuck with and that will never have any kind of payoff at the end of the line, what do you build? And that's kind of the grand experiment of what I wanted to find out. Um, I kind of decided that being a, a, a multi-billionaire was not for me, and um, it didn't excite me very much. So if you, if you built a company exclusively trying not to achieve that end goal, then, and, you, and you completely built something you're going to be stuck with forever, what do you build? And so the answer is you, you build the best thing possible for users and customers and the team and something that you're happy to work on every day because it feels good and it feels like it's beneficial for, for you, for the people you're around and for the world that you live in. And it checks all of those boxes rather than, well, maybe it's going to pay off one day. So it's a lot less of a lottery ticket.
0: I talk to a lot of founders who have a company that has some sort of mission And I find there's pretty much three different types of founders who have a mission. There's the founder who has a mission and it's total bullshit. You can tell they don't (laughs) believe in it. It doesn't matter. They just they're just paying lip service to having a mission and thing they care about. There's people who are kind of in the middle, which I think is the most common, where they might have a mission or a goal for their company and how it affects the world, and they really do believe in it and care about it, but it's still mostly a means to an end. They recognize the prudence of having a mission and how that keeps them aligned, but they're not necessarily all in. It's not their life journey. They wouldn't give up the chance at a big payday to have this sort of mission. And then there's founders like you who actually deeply care about the thing that you're working on, which in this case is, I think, independent journalism. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Where does that passion come from? Why do you care so much about something like that?
1: I mean, there's, there's so many different angles to it. I, I think journalism, as a as a concept, is one of the most important ideas that we have. At its most basic level, journalism is the idea of informing people to better make decisions about their own lives or community, specifically of people. Whether that's uh, what to buy, who to vote for, it's it's giving people information needed to make decisions better. And. The purpose of it is is for society to be able to evolve more efficiently and um, to be a better informed society than it started out as. And I think that's an important idea. I mean, in 2019, more than at any other time, arguably. Yeah. And in 2019, more than at any other time, journalism has uh, no money behind it, has no business model, has no method of surviving the notion of what we think journalism is has never been in a worse state as a result of that money drying up because a lot of it now is just click rate, clickbait to get the last drabs of advertising that barely exist anymore. And so trying to um, address that or, or fix that in some way feels like a meaningful problem to solve and there's people who um, need that problem to be solved. And uh, and from a product point of view, it's just an interesting problem to solve. It's an interesting challenge to work on to build publishing software. It's certainly not one of the easiest things you can do, but it's it's got a lot of interesting nuance. So, um, and and then my experience in in working on WordPress, which was a comparable product, is a comparable product in some ways, is obviously a natural advantage in in starting something like this.
0: It's funny because if you think about when you started Ghost, which is what two thousand
1: thirteen
0: thirteen. This yes. is. Back in those days, I think journalism was already sort of under siege in a weird state, but it's only gotten worse. Like oh, yeah. The 2016 election sort of blew things up. The yeah. continued rise of social media has really uh, impacted things in a weird way. And I think your mission has only become more relevant over time. But, you know, this is a business show. We're talking about how to start a company. And I think for most people, it's difficult just to get a profitable company off the ground, let alone start a company where they're having an impact on some mission that they care about. Yes. How do you achieve both of those things simultaneously?
1: Mm, Really good question. I mean, So there's probably a lot of different ways, I'm sure there's a lot of different ways you you can achieve it. And um, I can give an answer from my own kind of survivorship bias point of view, but just keep in mind that what worked for me won't necessarily work for you. But what worked for me was to go after the idea that seems not interesting, but the one that I knew a lot about. So in 2013, the idea of starting yet another blogging platform was not a good one. It was not one where I thought, like this is the next Airbnb, this is going to be a huge thing. It was like, oh, who wants another blogging platform? That's not a good idea. But it was a problem that I deeply understood because of having worked on WordPress. So it was the obvious thing to work on, not the interesting thing to work on. And Mm -hmm. in spite of not finding it a sexy idea initially, I I still kept coming back to it because I could see the problems with WordPress and I could understand what the market of people using WordPress, at least a subset of them, really wanted. Um, and I felt like I could do something better, but I was not convinced that it was interesting enough to be a viable product or a viable company. So for me, the answer was the, the obvious idea, which had an established market, had an established um, demand, in which I understood the, the nuances of what could be built and what should be built in that space. So that, that's one answer.
0: It's it's funny because it's almost the opposite of what I would expect. I would expect you to say, I started with my passion, even though it was not a viable (laughs) market and I didn't know very much about it. Uh, But you took a very practical approach to getting here, and now you're doing something that's supremely meaningful. Do you feel like you've had to change your vision, change your views a lot since Ghost first started to get here, or has it just been smooth sailing?
1: (laughs) I don't know about smooth sailing, but we've been pretty... Pretty dogged about um, maintaining the same vision. Um, A lot of that was locked in. Another so a thing about kind of choosing nonprofit up front, right? Is you you can't change. Like I, I locked myself into owning no part of the business, which means um, and and this kind of this came to fruition. So I said when Ghost launched, uh, if someone came along and offered me ten million dollars for the company, I couldn't take it because I don't own the company, and that. Is a safeguard that makes makes the business relevant because it's going to stick around. It's not going to. It's not. I can't just change my mind at some point down the road and say, actually, I'm going to sell out on all the stuff that I promised our, our users and our customers. So you can. Right. My word is legally behind what I'm saying, which is not something people do usually. Um, and that that actually did come to fruition in 2015. I was in San Francisco and we had some uh, investors trying to convince us to do a Series A, and we we're like, we're a nonprofit, we can't. They're like we've got $10 million and we really think that you could go far. And we're like, we're a non-profit, we can't. <laughs> we are a non we can not we can not do it. Um, and that for all my own moral integrity and the strength of, of my beliefs, when you're sat opposite someone at a table saying, we think this business could be big, we want to give you $10 million to support it. And they're not just saying that, but they're also saying, this is your one opportunity, this is your one window to succeed. You do not want to squander this. And this is not a random stranger, this is someone who's invested in GitHub and Airbnb, and um, you are in an environment where you feel uh, helpless to the powers and that everyone else around you knows so much more than you do, uh, you resolve wavers, no matter how much you believe something. And having the safeguard of, I've already made this decision, and I've legally locked myself into this decision, um, I've never been more grateful for. And in hindsight, the um, the power dynamics of that conversation that I was having uh, were terrible. Were awful. Like it was uh, out and out manipulation of the kind that you there are movies and books about of wow. uh, investors manipulating startup founders to to get ahead. But still, it it played out. That was exactly the purpose of having that structure. So to to kind of circle back to your question, we've stuck completely to the mission that we had, um, in part because of the structure we put in place, and in part because we've been able to, thanks to the the business working and and being profitable from year one. So we've always been sustainable. And um, yeah, we're still on that path.
0: So when we first spoke, Ghost was pretty far from being a super early stage company, and you're making uh, high six figures in revenue every year. But now you're much bigger than that, and I'm interested to talk about some of the differences, some of the things that an early stage founder might look forward to or might have to expect as they're... Business grows.
1: Yeah, uh-huh. I think it's a really interesting subject for me uh, because there's so there's a lot of information out there about starting something. Previously, more around kind of traditional startups. Increasingly, thanks to um, sites like Indie Hackers, there's more information out there about how to bootstrap stuff and and get started. And then there's uh, there's kind of a, a massive amount of information at the other end of the spectrum of um, you know running large companies and management theories and corporate structures and. Fucking holocracy and shit like that, but there's this there's this middle that's that's kind of un, not really talked about. There's the sort of gap between oh, you've passed initial traction. You've got like um, let's say a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue. Like that's a real yeah. business for for a, a I don't know a few people. That's a real business that's meaningful. It's that's succeeding, but it's not big enough to have all of those problems be naturally solved, just hire a bunch of people and throw them at the problem. Like, No, there's a, there's a big gap between the first couple of hundred K a year of revenue and then feeling moderately comfortable and like you can do stuff, which is kind of where we just, I feel like that point happened for us around like 1.5 million a year. It's in a big revenue. Gap. It's a really big gap. And there's not a lot of people talking about like, oh, well, how do you get from one to the other? And, and what changes between one and the other? And I don't, I don't have all the answers to that either, but I think it's a... Uh, an interesting thing to talk about. I, I think the biggest thing that changes both uh, in revenue growth from from point A to point B, as well as in um, company age, I guess, is, I guess the the last time we spoke, we must have been four or five people. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not completely sure. And um, I was hands-on everywhere. In every single decision, every single thing happening at the company, um, I would be involved in Versus today, uh, we're just starting, so we're 15 people now, and we're just starting to be at the point, which is still tiny in everyone's eyes, by the way, um, but we're just starting to be at the point where we have more than one team. Like there's an infrastructure team, and then there's a product team, and there's a business team now. And each one of those um, has its own goals and its own meetings and is starting to uh, have its own roadmap. And I'm not necessarily involved in every single decision about every single thing that ships. And that's a, a completely different a uh, different frame of mind to be in as a founder. And to transition from one to the other is is a journey in and of itself.
0: How do you hire people and find the right people that you can give the level of autonomy to where you know, you're transitioning from a founder who controls everything and, and you can feel pretty confident that things are done well because your hand is in every pot, but now you have to sort of give up that psychological control, which I know can be hard to do. How do you hire people who you can trust uh, and not feel bad about
1: it? Yeah, I so, saw um, there's a great, quote about this I saw the other day. I'm going to butcher it, but I'll try. Which is, in the in the early days of, of being a startup, you have to be involved in every single detail, detail and care about every single micro decision that gets made. And if and when a startup succeeds, you have to stop doing that. So the very thing that is a strength in the beginning is an immediate liability, if and when you achieve any sort of success. So it's this complete dichotomy of you need a skill set in the beginning which will kill your business if you don't change it later on. So finding people at the right stage with the right set of skills and the right set of values is always difficult, particularly when you're not fully one or the other. We're still not fully, like I'm still involved in a lot. Maybe not everything anymore, but still a lot. And um, I'm not sure if there's um, a succinct answer to this other than finding people who believe what you believe and working closely enough with them so that they understand how you think and how you make decisions and frame their own work against the the same trajectory as as what you're you're hoping to achieve. And beyond that, it's just a lot of trial and error of um, figuring things out together.
0: One of the things that struck me about Ghost in the early days is that it was a very well thought out product exceptionally well-designed, even just the landing pages, you could tell a lot of care went into those. And as you grow and you're sort of delegating these tasks to other people who don't have your same personality necessarily, your same set of skills, you have to give that up. I think it's easy for the quality of your product to slip. And the number of things you have to focus on increases. You can't give things as much attention as you did earlier on. Uh, And yet you just released Ghost 3.0 and it seems like it's even better than the original ghost. Like it's getting better as you as you get bigger. But what contributes to that? How do you make that happen as your company gets bigger and is being a nonprofit and having sort of a long term view? Does that contribute at all?
1: It's all good determination in many in many regards. I'm not sure if nonprofit helps or hinders or um, has much an impact in this area, but. It's it's one of the most difficult things to maintain. I will say that it's um, something I think a lot about, and is I think one of the reasons why it becomes so difficult to delegate is uh, if you have a quality bar which you consider to be your reputation, which we very much do, then maintaining that bar, not even aspirational. It's not even like oh we um, we aspire to maintain the level of quality we have now. It's not even a goal. It's like we can't fall below this line because then we'll lose what we've already got. Which is just an interesting framing because it doesn't feel like it's something worth shooting for, but it does feel like it's something that you can't let go. And it's not an easy thing to maintain, particularly in design. I think design's one of the hardest just because a brand's voice, whether visual or the words used or the tone of, of the company, um, are crucial, particularly when you're connecting with an early audience that who that resonates with. And maintaining that, it's not easy. So I I almost have no useful answer at all to this other than, yes, it's incredibly difficult, and yes, you have to continue to focus on it, and yes, the more people you add to the team, the harder it becomes for that not to get diluted.
0: What kind of trade-offs do you have? Because I think... Very often, if you want to have some sort of stringent standard, like our design quality cannot fall below this bar, mm. uh, you can do that, but you have to make a sacrifice in some other area of your business. Yeah. Uh, what kind of trade offs have you made for Ghost as it's grown? Hours work per day is the
1: obvious one, right? Implementation time, I guess. It's, so it would be it would, almost all things you can, you can ship a shitty MVP version pretty quick. And in a lot of cases, that's the thing you should do, and that's the correct decision. In other cases, it's worth taking the extra week. It's worth taking the extra bit of time or number of iterations to get something right so that it resonates more strongly with an audience. Because you get one chance to make a first impression, right? whether it's with a new product or a new feature or a new thing. And often there's a bias towards shipping quickly, but sometimes it comes at the expense of making a good enough impression to even get an early user base. And that's a, that's a balance that you constantly have to weigh in terms of falling between the right lines, not shipping too fast and not waiting too long. But we've built a reputation on being a well-designed platform. And for us to maintain that is important. So yeah, that's something we think about a lot.
0: One of the things that I struggle with as indie hackers gets bigger, and I think a lot of founders struggle with, is that your to-do list basically continually grows. The number yeah. of things that you discover you should be doing or want to be doing never gets smaller, it just gets bigger and bigger even as you're crossing things off that list and you have to somehow prioritize what you're going to build. And I think in the early days as a founder, uh, you're just trying to like make your first dollar in revenue. You can really just determine a lot of what you need to build because it's the bare minimum that your customers need. Yeah. Uh, when you're a little bit more mature, uh, it turns out you've sort of got that covered, you've built Ghost as a platform, people like using it, and now you've kind of got a wide array of options that you can choose to pursue. Yeah. Uh, you just released Ghost 3.0. How do you, as a little bit you know, later stage founder, determine what kind of features are worth focusing on, what's going to help you grow and accomplish your mission?
1: There's a great book. Uh, the, the title escapes me, but I'll ask Cortland to put a link in the, um, in the show notes after this, which is written by the guy who, I think he invented WebKit, and he invented the iOS, the original iOS keyboard. And it's how it's about how things were designed at Apple during like kind of peak Apple, so two thousand, mm-hmm. I don't know, six to eight, nine, whatever you want to consider that period as. And um, the the big kind of it's a really interesting book. I highly recommend it. But the big takeaway from the book is that best products at Apple came out of a small group of people building prototypes, and iterating on them, and having a very deep connection to the problem that they were trying to solve quickly. So I guess how we we kind of have a similar philosophy in terms of how we think about products. It's a lot. Uh, it's driven a lot internally by the things that we believe to be true about the market we're in, about the use case we're trying to solve, and about our own experience solving those use cases. I think in product development, there's almost an overemphasis on um, listening to the customer and lean customer development or lean product development by talking to customers and in customer interviews, and while all of those things are valuable, they should be one tool in your tool set, not the sole tool. You can get a lot of false information from customers by asking the wrong questions or by asking the right questions to the wrong people. And these things can often lead lead you down uh, a, a huge distracting path versus your own direct experience of solving a problem and understanding deeply the problem that you're solving from your own experience of being the user. So um, we try and balance listening to what people are saying. and what people um, are asking for, and that's almost just the the really, really short-term roadmap. Then there's the the stuff we want to do that we care about, and that's kind of the medium-term roadmap. Mm. And then the long-term roadmap is really fueled by what we believe to be true about the world, and where we think the entire market and industry is going, and what our competitors are doing around us, and yeah. what's happening in in the state of humanity that yeah. that is changing, which is the more relevant kind of long term goal. So, I think i will give you three like more tangible, quick examples of that. People were asking uh, last year a lot about you know, responsive images and and how to do translated content in Ghost, and that was kind of something had been asked about so often that it was hard to ignore. So we added those features in, in Ghost 2.0 and a lot of those requests went away. It wasn't like a thing that we were super passionate about solving, mm. and there were already workarounds that could solve all of those things, but we made it a bit easier, and that was cool. And memberships and subscriptions is something we've been thinking about for years or so that we've just launched in Ghost 3.0 that enables a whole new business model for news, and that feels or for publishers in general, and that feels important. And we care about it a lot. And it took a long time to get there. And then the trajectory of Ghost is over I don't know, 10, 20 years is on is on being around as a starting point. So that means the business has to be sustainable. It can't just be burning through investor dollars until they run out and then disappear. In in many ways, our strategy is to outlast the competition. And in a lot of ways, the world is is moving to be more decentralized, more privacy focused. That's, you know, we've always had that angle, but that's only started to become I don't know, trendy in the last, mm-hmm. what, 12 to 18 months. And so making sure that we are going to be compatible with whatever that future world is going to look like.
0: So, are you like simultaneously doing these sort of quick user requested features and combination with your medium term outlook and combination with your long term outlook? Or are you like, oscillating between all three of these like every couple of weeks? What does it look like to try to balance all this stuff?
1: Yeah, you're right, because a lot of people say stuff like this and then it's like, okay, but how do I apply this in reality? And that's often, when I listen to podcasts, that's a frustration. I have. I'm like, that sounds great, but how the fuck do you do all that stuff? So more practically, uh, we work in cycles like Basecamp do. Um, so we have six-week product cycles, where we, so we have a set of work that we think can be done in six weeks and that's what we're going to do. And then there's a two-week gap of kind of um, bug fixing and planning for the next cycle. Right. And so you end up with six cycles per year. That's right, yeah. And everything that we plan to do, whether it's um, a user-requested feature, uh, a medium-term plan or a long-term plan, plan is going to fit into one of these cycles in some way. So practically six times per year we do planning and in those six times per year we decide how many small things, how many big things... And how many things in between are we going to take on? And uh, it varies. So some usually the beginning of like a calendar year, is like we're like, okay, here's some big things we're going to take on for the whole year. It's just yeah. a natural kind of point to do that type of planning. And then usually there'll be one cycle in the middle of the year where we go, okay, we're just going to do these user-requested features because people have been making so much noise about this for so long. So it changes it, it oscillates at the points of these cycles, and the cycles are quite helpful for uh, one being able to say no the rest of the time when people are coming in with requests like cool that 's we 've made a note, but we 're not going to think about it now we 're going to think about it in six weeks time or whenever mm-hmm. the gap in the next six week cycle is, and also for them when you get to that gap, kind of taking stock and going, "Are we still doing the right things, or should we change the plan of what we 're doing so far this year?" so it both allows you to um, go faster and not go too fast, um, which is really helpful. Do
0: you think you've made any you know, easily identifiable mistakes and what you've planned on working on in the last you know, couple of years since we've spoken? And if so, you know, what are your thoughts on why that happened and how do you correct?
1: We've definitely made mistakes. We've been quite fortunate not to make very many big mistakes. General judgment has been on our side. I think the most significant ones Have been in overly ambitious engineering projects, which we underestimated up front. So, really, a really kind of practical example of this is there's a two login problem with a managed service, which is called Ghost Pro. And so, Ghost, the product, is an open source piece of software, and you have a user account with an email and a password, but it's Decentralized, right? So every instance is separate. So we have a hosting service where you also have a username and a password or an mm-hmm. email address and a password. And so people sign up and they create these two different accounts because uh, that's the only way you can do it. It's the same if you were to set up like a WordPress site or something that was self-hosted. Um, but they forget that there's two accounts. And so there's a massive amount of confusion about, oh, how come I've got a login for ghost.org, but then that's not the same as a login for my site? I don't understand. And um, that came up enough times that we were like, okay, we're going to solve this and uh, we're going to solve it with OAuth. So, we're going to have a login with ghost button. So, that necessitates that you build this sort of centralized service, which can serve requests via this like login with ghost button. And, uh, and then you'd have this magical ubiquitous flow, right, of just one login to rule them all. You right. could log into all your ghost sites with one login, and that would also be your billing account. It sounds great. In practice, um, one, OAuth is terrible as a spec to work with. And, and two, it didn't solve anything. It just introduced new problems because now we could have this one login. Um, And we spent like six months building this, by the way. Yeah, At least with like five people on and off, at least two full time. So now you could log in with one thing, one login. And then what happens if you log out? Well, there's a problem we didn't think about. So what happens? Do you get logged out of one site? Do you get logged out of your site and your billing account? Do you get logged out of your site and your billing account and all the other sites you have set up? What if I'm like a guest author on your site, but I also own my own site and I have one login for both, but you kick me out of yours? do i get logged out of your site and my site or just one like there's just a whole host of new problems yeah, of sounds fun. This decentralized architecture and in hindsight building like um, this big login with ghosts centralized thing was just not a problem we ever should have taken on like not a lot of people have login with x buttons why is that because it's a really difficult thing to solve that's why twitter do it and google do it but you know basecamp don't it's just not a it's not an easy thing to solve And so there's been a few projects like that that have probably represented our biggest mistakes where we've taken on something that big companies do because we felt big startups, big tech startups do because we felt like they do it, that's the thing people want and that's the thing we need to do and we have to do the same to compete or to at least be held in the same regard and it doesn't make sense um, because they have 100 engineers for that one login button and we had two engineers for a whole company. So eventually we we threw that whole system out, we rolled it back, we got rid of the whole thing, and we've tried to be better about identifying these things in advance. But now I think we're more, as a result, more careful about the engineering challenges we take on when we compare ourselves to other products out there and other Mm -hmm. features. We go, how big is the team working on that? Because if we're realistically going to do something similar, we shouldn't be taking on a challenge where we're competing against a team of 300 people working on this one feature. Um, or that is only possible because 300 people works on this one feature. So biggest problems over ambitious engineering yeah. in favor rather than what we should have done and what we're increasingly doing now is uh, authentication authenticationless, no factor authentication. So magic email links. That's a really easy thing to do and it solves the same problem. So you put in your email address, you get a link, it logs you Click in. It and that's it. That's it. No one has to remember anything. It's like every link is a password reset link, right? So it immediately solves having two logins. It solves anyone having to remember any details. It solves centralized versus decentralized. And uh, it's a trivial thing to implement. It's not hard at all. And that was the decision we should have made that we have arrived at now.
0: It's funny because... Uh, you mentioned you know Google and these bigger companies doing this, and they don't even have it figured out. No, like if you share a Google Doc to my personal account <laughs> and I click it, That's such and a I'm, good point. I'm logged into like three different accounts. Google's like, which account do you want to open it with? And it's like it only belongs to one of my accounts. Google, you and figure no matter it out.
1: which one you click on, it's like a redirect. loop. Exactly,
0: it's yeah. super hard. It's a it's tough problem, really difficult. And I think this is a problem that you know we've been talking a lot about how things have changed. This ghost has gotten bigger, but this is a problem that exists at pretty much every exactly. phase. of a company. I talked to a ton of early stage founders who their number one problem is they are just, their eyes are bigger than their stomach. You know, they keep trying to code these things and do things that huge companies do and it's like, you are an Andy hacker. Just do the super small, simple version of it and that'll be much better. And the problem with any degree of success
1: at any stage of any business is that your ambitions grow with your success level. So, Uh, like anything in life, right? The th- the thing that was your dream or your goal what was a name for this. Is a Dunning-Kruger No, it's the, yeah. it's the other one, right? Like your your ambitions will always grow. Your whatever your goal is today, once you achieve it, that will become your new normal, and you'll come up with new goals. And the same is true for product development and yep. your ideas of of what you could do. Yeah, and you have to balance it.
0: Jeff Bezos has a a good quote about having sort of a long term vision for the future, where he talks about. Kind of the default thing to do is look at what's changing in the world, what are the trends, what's new and what's upcoming. But his personal vision is to do the exact opposite and ask what doesn't change, what's still gonna be the same, you know, 10, 15 years from now, Uh, and we're gonna focus on that as a company, and that's Amazon, obviously. With Ghost, I don't know how how true or how useful that model will be because you're dealing with the publishing industry, with writing, which is changing pretty rapidly. Yeah. I mean, Amazon is selling products, which I'm not gonna say is not changing, but like people are (laughs) just gonna buy mops 10 years from now, I'm pretty sure. And your estimation, you know, what are some things that haven't changed and won't change in the future with, with publishing?
1: Yeah, I think Jeff Bezos' example in, in that one is shipping times, right? Like mm. People always want to have fast no matter what. Yep. So 10 years from now, people are not going to want to get something they order on the internet any slower, so invest heavily in, in infrastructure and delivery. It makes a lot of sense. Fulfillment yeah. makes perfect sense. From Go's point of view, um, there's a few things which definitely won't change. Um, I think the world needs... Journalism and that's not going to change. And um, there'll be a desire to do some form of journalism, storytelling, content creation, sharing. No matter which way you want to frame it, I would argue that a lot of these new YouTubers are a new form of journalism, and mm. the very least a new form of publishing. And I don't think that's going to go away. Although the formats in which that kind of takes shape probably will. And then there's, I would offer the hypothesis that someone will always want the written word. I think a lot of f- formats do come and go, but that the written word is the cheapest to distribute, um, the most broadly understood, the most easily translatable, yeah. the most data-friendly in terms of bandwidth, and there will always be some form of published written word that is unlikely to ever become completely irrelevant. And and those are probably the only two big constants that I think about. I, like you say, I think everything else is evolving pretty quickly. I think for the next 10 years, definitely something that we're going to see more of is publishers that are trying to earn a living. And, and that mm-hmm. overlaps with the indie hacker, maker, creator audience as well in terms of people trying to make an independent living, start a small business, and sustain themselves. And generational studies, if you look at like we're now kind of Gen Z, whatever's coming next after millennials, right, is, is just starting to enter the job market for the first time. And uh, a lot of the early signs show that they are equally entrepreneurial, if not more, than the the generation before them, so I think that's not going to change. I think we're going to see a lot of people trying to start their own thing, work independently, and have some form of independence, financial independence,
0: yeah. in one way or another. Yeah, and I think it's it's a fascinating topic. It's one I think about a lot too. Obviously, running indie hackers is uh, we're entering I don't know, arguably like a golden era of like the individual maker making a living online by themselves and yeah. ghost, especially now, Ghost three helps facilitate that. Yes. Um, you're allowing people to basically set up their own publication write for their own audiences and charge money for their content directly uh, without really having to set up a bunch of different individual pieces of that uh, in a complex way what are you seeing in that space you think it's it's a growing area do you think indie hackers can succeed there and then if so like what are their best options
1: yeah so this this whole space um, I'm massively excited about I mean no surprise right but we're just at such an interesting point. In, in so many different regards in terms of what's possible for independent business owners, um, regardless of what you publish. if You, you might publish code, you might mm. publish words, you might publish videos. If you're putting something out into the world, um, I would argue you're publishing it. And if you have an audience for it, then you're a publisher. And so where we are now um, in the more traditional kind of journalism space is for a while you had advertising and that worked great. Then Google and Facebook came along and they ate all of the advertising dollars. They just disappeared completely. So traditional media has no money anymore. It has no money whatsoever, and it's all drying up, but we're starting to see new media business models succeed, um, like Ben Thompson Stratechery, like smaller publications in here in San Francisco, like The Information, people in Europe like The Correspondent, um, who've also just opened in, in um, the US, where aligning the incentives of An audience who get value from content that's being produced uh, and being willing to pay for it directly are able to do so thanks to technology like Stripe with recurring subscription payments, and that's getting easier and easier. And there's people starting to have more and more success with it. And then you've got the whole new creator movement with Patreon and um, even Open Collective to a lesser extent on the Mm -hmm. open source side. There's this new wave of indie businesses which realizing the internet is now big enough to support niche businesses. Niche businesses are no longer tiny. Niche business can be a big business because having a very specialized thing now has a large enough audience to be able to actually make money from it. And so software is kind of the the first example that got there, right? So we had on-premise software, now we have software as a service. And whereas 20 years ago, no one would pay for something in the cloud, now it's like, I can't imagine having a piece of software that it comes on a CD or that doesn't live in the cloud. Like, why would it not be in the cloud? And paying subscriptions for stuffs completely normal. But there's all these other business sectors which could have subscription payments, but it's not easy. Right now, you still uh, need a competent developer to understand the Stripe API and be good enough to work with it and build the same bit of subscription billing over and over again. So right. we tried with Ghost 3.0 to solve this problem for publishers, and we built memberships and subscriptions, subscription billing directly with Stripe into Ghost so that within under kind of 10 minutes, if you have an existing Stripe account, you can set up a website, you can connect to subscription payments, and you can start getting customers immediately. And I think that's the first move towards a new type of business model that. I think is going to become more ubiquitous. Just as we've seen e-commerce explode and e-commerce mm-hmm. platforms enable a lot of that, I think subscription commerce has a very healthy future. And platforms, I hope including Ghost and like Ghost, will make that easier and easier over time. So I think for, for indie hackers and indie makers... What we've built now is almost like a good prototype. If you if you want to start like uh, you you need a site, you need uh, user signups, and you want to be able to build these people monthly, you could set up a Ghost instance which does all of those things, and then you can focus on building your products. And the only thing you have to do is then connect the, the user systems, right, at some point, so that your members have access to whatever it is you've built, written, created, whatever it is. So it's almost like um, yeah, a good step in the door. Uh, even potentially for kind of no-code movement startup founders, people who are interested in uh, just getting an MVP out as quick as possible. And I think in practice, that whole space is is going to grow tremendously as we have more and more people building stuff.
0: I think if you're a writer, you look at the ecosystem, and there's just so many options for where you should be publishing content. Should it be on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, where you can build a following? Should you be starting a newsletter where you can sort of collect email addresses and then keep those sort of to yourself? Should you be on a platform like Medium or should you start your own blog that you host or should you yeah. uh, install Ghost? How do you think people should think about like this array of options? And I realize you're biased here <laughs> uh, as a person who runs Ghost. Um, so maybe a better question is why choose Ghost or some of these other platforms if you're trying to make a living for yourself? Yeah,
1: I'm very biased, but I'll try and give a, an honest answer. Um, I think... Previously, the answer for why not to use Ghost, uh, maybe that's a good place to start, is the distribution mechanism, right? So um, the biggest advantage Twitter had, and, and Medium definitely had, past tense, was that you could go and write there and the Network effects you would get would mean you could you could grow an audience from nothing. So you could just write something, hit publish, and it would find an audience, and that audience could grow much more effectively than on the open web, where you can publish just into the ether and never know if anyone's read it. I think what we're starting to see now is social media feels like it's uh, a little bit on its last legs, or at the very least, kind of on the way down. Uh, Medium is just pop-up hell now, and unless you agree to put your content behind their paywall, they don't distribute it via their network at all anymore, like that just doesn't that's <laughs> doesn't happen so the network effect is gone so for the reason why ghost is is important or why why we think it's important is because no matter what happens uh, with network effects or anything else, you still own the platform mm-hmm. so if it gets if any of these other companies get sold or shut down or change your kind of your writing disappears with them and we used to kind of open source movements always sort of hypothesised that that would happen, but there weren't very many examples of it actually happening enough to scare people into really believing it. Whereas I think in the last few years we've really seen the kind of the dark sides of what can happen with companies being bought and sold, with data being leaked, with uh, centralized players with masses amount of data um, not necessarily being the best stewards for it, and increasingly people are starting to care about this. And I think increasingly we're starting to see better decentralized options which still solve the network effect. So we've got ActivityPub spec, which powers things like Mastodon as an alternative to Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're starting to see better options that are not just in the centralized space. So if you're going to choose a platform, my advice is choose something that you... Own not just the copyright to your content, but choose something where you control how your content lives. Like, can someone else shut you down? If they can, I would argue you don't own anything or control it. And then figure out your marketing from there. You know, publish on something you own, and then figure out your distribution. Um, however, you want distribution. Distribution always changes, but ownership of content. Is consistent,
0: and you're not like taking a cut of the revenue that people make. No, we take zero percent. That's the best bit. So if you right. if
1: you want to use Ghost memberships and subscriptions to get your business off the ground, um, we're not a middleman. So you can't no level of revenue can you scale to where Ghost is making more.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because a lot of companies have. Um, what essentially looks like bait and switch over a kind of a long time horizon, where everyone's like, oh, my Facebook page is growing so well, yes. this is like the new medium. And then, like, Facebook clamps down, starts limiting who you can access, starts charging you money, and people move off of Facebook. Yeah. And a lot of people built you know, publications on Medium. And I, now, the most common story here is people moving off of Medium because yeah. it's almost predatory. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of merit to building on kind of a, a free and open source platform where essentially you guys have no incentive to screw anyone over or take their subscribers or do anything like that yeah. um, for the indefinite future. In fact, it would probably be impossible for you to even do that.
1: Yeah, it would be. And so maybe this is a good point to to pull on uh, for your audience. In terms of when you're at the, the early stages of building uh, any sort of indie hacker business or mm-hmm. indie business, I think one of the, the best consistent thought exercises you can have is... How do you align your incentives with the incentives of your audience or your customers for the long term? Because if you do that, there's, there's few ways in which you can lose. If think the decisions you're making, the things you're building will over time uh, be better and better for your users and your customers, mm-hmm. uh, it's very difficult for that to get turned on its head or turn around. Whereas if, if you're doing something which over time will get worse and worse for your customers, say taking a 10% payment transaction fee, right? if I take 10% of your $1,000 a month hypothetical revenue now, probably fine, but it, over 10 years, if you scale your revenue to a few million or a few hundred million, Well, suddenly like you're paying a completely outsized amount for me providing the exact same service at a slightly higher level. So the economics are getting worse for you and better for me. And if that's the case, you're probably going to want to move off, go to a different competitor or do something completely different. Versus if you are getting the same amount of, uh, or you're paying the same amount but getting more value from uh, using Ghost over time, then that's going to be better for you. This is a very trivial example, but if you, can, if you can align your incentives with that of your audience, then they will continue to be happy with you as you continue to be happy with the market that you're in. And these things kind of solve themselves. It's where the incentives don't align, and advertising is a perfect example of this, um, where over time things tend to go to shit as people figure out you've got their private data and you're selling it and they don't like that and you've just leaked all of it. And some guy calls Alex, I can't remember what his name is, from Cambridge Analytica now... Yeah has the keys uh, to your whole personal life. So I don't know, that's a that's a good thread to come back to, I think, in terms of aligning in, uh, incentives as much as possible solves a lot of difficult questions.
0: I think one of the biggest worries that an early stage indie hacker has, is just growth. A lot of the times they're just worried, like, is anyone going to read what I'm writing? Right? Is anyone going to buy what I'm selling? And I think that creates some of the allure for these platforms that promise to help with distribution, where they have a built-in distribution yeah. network you know running ghost and seeing so many different people making money from their blogs and their websites what's your advice for someone who's trying to figure out how to grow when they're in the very early stages
1: yeah um i think in a lot of ways finding the audience uh, is almost the the more difficult initial problem and the more important initial problem than than what the idea that you have is because it's just such an instant mechanism for feedback and validation um when I, when ghost started i already had I don't know, fifteen thousand followers on Twitter or something, and I've been writing a blog for a few years, so I already had an audience to validate product ideas against. And I think something that gets skipped a lot is in in conversations like this is someone says, "Oh, validate your idea, ask people what they think." But if you've got nobody to ask, or you've only got a very very small, um, statistically not significant group of people to ask, then your data is not going to be very good. Right. So building an audience is an unbelievably valuable thing to do, whether that's by blogging, podcasting. Um, starting a YouTube channel, like whatever it is you want to do, um, building any kind of audience, ideally within um, the market that you want to sell to or create something for, is one of the best things you can do full stop because it'll just give you the ability to get feedback on whether or not an idea is even good. And if it is a good idea, it will get natural traction. If something is a good idea, people will bite your head off to take it. I had written. I had all sorts of business ideas before Ghost, which I wrote blog posts about, and that got no traction, or that I launched and got no traction, or that got just vanishingly, frustratingly small amounts of traction. That felt like there might be something there, but there wasn't. And when I first wrote the the, the blog post about Ghost, you know, it was three three hundred thousand views in, in a week or something, quarter of a million, um, and 30,000 email addresses in my opt in form. That was like like instant, okay, this is what I have to focus on. So I think finding any mechanism for getting that feedback and being able to have any kind of audience is so valuable and it requires nothing other than creating uh, something, putting something out into the world and and talking to your peers, having conversations. Any form of uh, creating something will and interacting and talking will we'll start to build that audience. But just building products in a box without talking to anyone rarely yeah. leads to success.
0: One of the things you mentioned is that you know the internet sort of hitting full speed nowadays is uh, enabling all sorts of people to create different businesses they've never been able to create just because of the niches that you can target. You can be so specific yes. and so um, just like idiosyncratic with what you're working on, and there's still hundreds of thousands of people on the internet who want that. Yes. So my favorite kind of visual example is like if imagine you live in a town, like a hundred thousand people and you start a business that, you know, ten people care about. It's probably not sustainable, it's not enough. Yeah. But if ten out of a hundred thousand people on the internet care about that, that's like millions of people. And suddenly yeah. you can create a business the likes of which could never have even existed. Yeah. And so we live in a world where now uh, there's just millions of unexplored ideas and things people haven't created that they could eventually create. And almost no matter how specific and weird your interests are, you can create a YouTube channel for that. You can write a blog about that. You can have a newsletter about that. And people uh, will probably take an interest if you can find out where they are. What are some of the more interesting niches and uh, sort of weird things you've seen on ghosts, if any come to mind?
1: Oh, there's so many, including uh, some very bizarre and creative forms of pornography which defy belief <laughs> in terms of just how specific they are and how big the apparent audience is for them. But I think this is such an important point for indie hackers in particular, because if you're, if you're early on and you, you haven't got that first idea yet, or you haven't necessarily found any success with an idea yet, it's very easy to um, look around and see success in startups and in big ideas and big audiences and read books where they say everything has to be a billion dollar idea um and think uh, like oh well no good no idea is good unless it's the next google or the next airbnb or the next whatever and it's such an anti-pattern for what can be like a really successful independent business and weirdly there's a weird parallel here because a lot of local news um Newspapers and news organizations, particularly in in the US, uh, went out of business as a result of getting this wrong. And what happened with... the internet kind of evening the playing field of distribution, was that local news orgs uh, all over the world, especially in the US, started covering more and more global news, news outside of their immediate communities. So whereas um, maybe whatever the the leading newspaper in Kansas is would would previously cover local issues, now they also cover not just national elections, but also what's happening in China and what's going on um, on the internet and around the world. And initially, publishers found out that the more and more they published, the more clicks they'd get, the more clicks they get, the more ad dollars they get. So publishing more and more things which were useful to as many people as possible, getting the largest, shallowest audience as possible was the thing that paid off. And eventually that put them out of business because the Kansas Tribune or whatever generic, small town newspaper you want to pick can't compete with the New York Times. It can't compete with the national, the global publishers. But where the global publishers can't compete where the Canvas, Kansas Tribune absolutely could, is in what's happening in Kansas. Like, what are, what are the issues of one particular community that are absolutely irrelevant and not interesting to the rest of yep. the world? And the same is true for so many, so many business ideas. There's so many communities which are missing key products which they would pay for, key communities or newspapers that they would pay for, but that no one is serving because it's not a big enough or not, not a sexy enough idea. So I think a lot of times thinking smaller... Can can lead to much bigger success than than trying to to be the next VC backed enormous thing. And um, increasingly, there's there's great examples of this. I mean, um, in the publishing space, you've got lots of new people on Substack, and um, there's, there's people making tens of thousands of dollars off newsletters about specific economic issues in in China. One of my favorite newsletters, "Stratechery" by Ben Thompson, is just really deep tech, um, really deep economic analysis of the tech industry. And Ben's doing great. He's doing yeah. incredibly well. And he made
0: millions of dollars like five years ago from his subscribers. Right. I can't and, imagine today. And he writes
1: one blog post a day uh, yeah. for a very specific group of people um, people who work in tech, who have very specific demands. They want to know like economic details of what's happening in tech and who are willing to pay for it and economically able to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more ideas like that that I think are ignored if you look at smaller communities. Who really do want something and who really are willing to pay for it? there are just maybe only 1 million of them, 1 million people rather than, you know, a billion. A billion.
0: Yeah. I think uh, one of the challenges here is that people have this sort of conception that people don't pay for content, right? You can log on to Twitter whenever you want, follow people, it's free. You can read uh, a bunch of different blogs and subscriptions online, and yeah. they're free. Uh, do you think that's changing? Do you think people are becoming more willing to pay for content? And if so, how do you, as an indie hacker, find out what kind of content people find valuable enough to actually pay for?
1: Yeah, I think the the second part of that question is the most relevant part, because I don't think it's changed that much. I think consumers are becoming more used to the idea of paying for things online, and particularly subscriptions. So, mm-hmm. You know we've got Spotify now, we've got Netflix, we've got Apple TV we've got Apple Arcade, we've got any number of other services you care to mention uh Dropbox things that people are familiar with paying a few dollars a month for to the point where that's no longer like a weird niche thing that doesn't necessarily mean they want to pay for them and I think the the thing people get wrong when they think about whether or not people are willing to pay for news in particular is if the Kansas Tribune covers the national election and wants Mm. me to pay for a story about it, I'm probably not going to pay that because they probably don't have better coverage of that than anyone else. But if they cover something that is completely local to their own community that I can't get anywhere else, I'm absolutely going to pay for it. So the question is of uniqueness and of value. Is the thing that's being produced, is it genuinely valuable to someone? So so it's not just a a vapid set of cat GIFs. Um, and is it available elsewhere? Is it easily available elsewhere? Is it a commodity that's available elsewhere, either for free or for very low cost? And if you can pass both of those tests, so you're creating something of value that is reasonably unique, then I think it becomes very easy to get people to pay for something. There's uh, so a great example of this. TechCrunch have a paid section now called the Extra Crunch. And within the Extra Crunch... They have a, I think it's a 21-page PDF deep-dive analysis of Patreon, the business. Mm-hmm. Um, they call it an EC1, and their idea of it is it's like an S1, uh, which is the documents people file before they go public. But it's just the kind of independent version. So they've done this massive analysis of Patreon, really in-depth. It's very fascinating to read. And it's not available anywhere else. It's not an easy thing to produce. There's no one else who's made something like it. Would you like to pay TechCrunch? a month and get access to this type of content. Well, I'm very interested in Patreon as a business. There's a lot of overlap between what we're building and what Patreon builds. So yes, I would absolutely like access to this. And that's the only place I can get it. So TechCrunch have produced something which is of significant value, that's Mm -hmm. very unique, and that makes the selling process to me very, very easy. And if you can touch on things like that, which are very valuable to a specific community the the notion of paying for it becomes almost trivial it's like how quickly can i pay for it just give me the the checkout form already i can't believe this exists this is awesome and i think with the smallest amount of creativity of thinking about what do people really want there are a lot more ideas out there, which are simply not the big clickbait things. They are not right. like, what could be the most popular? It's what could be the most valuable to a small group of people who really, really find it valuable. In
0: the intersection of, of being valuable and being unique, yes. which you certainly can't do if you're trying to compete in an area where there's tons of other people writing the exact same thing. And it's almost
1: antithetical writing. to being big. Yeah. like Don't try and think about what would be the most big or the most popular because that will take you down the right. exact opposite direction.
0: Right. That's what I like about um, Ben Thompson from Shiteker. He has no sort of uh, theatrics about being some big company. Uh, about like He's just one person. It's like, yeah. These are my views, and I put a lot of heart and soul into them and, and research them, but I'm just Ben Thompson. You know, It's yeah. not some huge industry, and I think people sometimes try to be way too big and too lofty, and they don't realize just how much value there is yes. um, in what you're saying. And there's other examples too. I talked to Sam Parr. Who runs the hustle a few months back and he's got a new thing called Trends, but they're also doing this in-depth research. Yeah. Yeah. And he's charging subscription fees, and people are, I think, paying and signing up for it. So it's pretty cool to see that you're able to to generate revenue from content. I never did it with indie hackers. I was doing interviews with people like you. Maybe it wasn't that unique. You know, maybe there weren't that there are a lot of other places you could go to get that kind of content, but I sort of monetized through advertising. I wonder what your thoughts are on, on that business model. Nowadays, if you're trying to write content and, and monetize, how much sense does it make to do what I was doing and call up advertisers and, and sell slots?
1: Increasingly difficult, I think, for podcasts and videos it's still a pretty big market, mm-hmm. but um, getting more difficult for written word. Um, I think it's pointless, uh, honestly. I just, I just don't think there's any sustainable living that can be made from uh, ads, display ads against the written word, um, no matter what you do. And it's getting worse. You know, ad blockers are, are getting. Better, oh, yeah. and better. Um, so it's getting worse and worse for publishers. Um, I still think there's quite a lot that can be done in the sort of space of brand deals, mm-hmm. uh, which you see YouTubers making millions from uh, if you get to a certain size. But the incentives, to kind of pull back to an earlier thread, the incentives are, are very misaligned. They are. Um, because you are not doing what's great for your audience. So you're making money by what's good for the company that's advertising, right? You're not necessarily aligning the way in which you make money with value being provided to your audience. And over the long run, that sort of pans out and solves itself, which is that your audience are not going to get the best deal. Uh, What I like so much about subscription-based publishing of any description is that the incentives are heavily aligned. The only way Ben Thompson can keep making money from Stratechery is if he continues to provide direct, unique value to his audience. And the moment he stops doing that, the moment he stops serving them directly as customers, uh, is when his revenue dries up. So. The interests are completely aligned. The only way you can continue to succeed is to continue to serve an audience really well. Um, I think for indie hackers, I mean, I know you're with Stripe now, but it it could have worked. Uh, I think a niche community with tangible advice uh, for people looking to do something similar to the the types of people who you interview is something I certainly would have paid for uh, when I was starting out, particularly if there's really substantive advice mm-hmm. of the kind that is readily available for funded startup founders, there's so much great advice. If you want to go and raise funding or uh, run a venture backed business, like there's an incredible amount of advice, and um, YC is almost like that type of community. Community, yep. um, and I think Indie Hackers maybe still could be uh, <laughs> be something like
0: that. It's uh, I think a really good point you mentioned about the incentives, uh, because I mean I was only selling ads for Indie Hackers, for maybe. Two or three months before it got acquired by Stripe, so I didn't get to go down this rabbit hole too deeply. But a month and a half into it, I was already at the point where certain advertisers were requesting certain changes to Andy Hacker's content. Can you do this? Can you change your website like this? Yeah. And it's like you say. Well, suddenly and that's like, a slippery these, slope, right? People are paying your your paycheck. You know, that's how you're making money, and it's very easy to listen to them. And that's not what your users yes. want. And so you're pulled in these two different directions. And I can't even imagine. What's going on in some of the bigger media companies that are primarily ad funded? Yes. You know, what are they writing about that they wouldn't be writing about if they weren't dependent on advertiser dollars? Or what are they afraid to write about because advertisers will pull their funding?
1: Yeah. And you can, you, that's a slippery slope that you can follow as, yeah. as far as you want down. And it never starts out being nefarious, right? It's always, it starts out as, um, oh, hey, could you not mention this here? And then a certain point, you've got a massive contract where yep. you would not be able to pay your rent if you lost this advertising contract. And now the advertiser wants the top story of the day deleted exactly. because it doesn't quite suit their interests. What do you do? And um, it would be nice to say, um, I would not pay my rent and, and whatever, but <laughs> when you 're faced with that scenario, um, the reality might be very different and so the the simplicity of aligned incentives has a lot to a lot to answer for
0: i um a while back was reading some blog post or other that talked about being a founder and dealing with competition, and I think you know they had like some practice questions on there. What would you do if this was your type of competitor? What would you do if Google decided to open up its uh, coffers and start funding or building a competitive product? Uh, I think someone responded, and they're like, "Well, you know, you know, it's even scarier than that. Like, what would you do if you know a competent, uh, free and open source product appeared on the scene and they started competing with you? Like, what are you going to do then?" And it's funny talking to you because I've always thought about this from the point of view of the founders to deal with that, but like you are that scary. You're the one who's who's entering the scene that others have to worry about. Do you feel like Ghost is disrupting the industry?
1: It's we're in a unique position. Two points there because um, on the one hand. Yes, we're the open source thing, but also our our biggest competitor, or the most established alternative platform, right. is also an open source thing, which is which is WordPress, of course. So it's kind of a, a, a double edged sword from that point of view. It's almost like um, <laughs> it's like a baseline requirement to compete in this particular space is to already be open source because you've already had um that one major platform be open source. Yeah, competition is an interesting one. I think in some cases. Yes, so there's a a couple of closed source competitors who I think are struggling to find business models and increasingly the prevalence of really competent open source platforms is becoming harder and harder to compete with for them. In other cases, no, because there's some enterprise-ish solutions which require more so a big sales and account management team than they do a competent piece of technology. Um, and, and it's bizarre how much that's true once you get to the upper end of the market. It's, um, big companies don't buy the best piece of software. They buy the piece of software with the best sales and account management team, which is a really weird thing once you learn it. It's like the, the quality of the product has nothing to do with it. It's how well do you manage their RFP process right. and contracts and all the bullshit that they throw at you of, can you do LDAP and uh, all these other weird types of authentication? And if you can do that then you get the contract for a very large amount and if you can't then you don't. At no point does someone say is the product any good. So in that end of the space no it makes no difference at all but so yeah it's it's a little bit of a spectrum I guess.
0: Well listen John we could probably talk for like six more hours. I have a <laughs> ton of questions I would love to ask about just like being a profitable open source business but maybe for a third episode at some point in the future. Nice. Thanks so much for doing this and taking the time. Congratulations on launching Ghost 3.0. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what's up to a ghost and what we're up to personally if you still share that kind of stuff online, if you're still doing your your vlogs?
1: For sure. Uh, So you can find me on Twitter at John and Olin, and I've actually just launched, (laughs) fittingly enough, my very own paid publication, uh, much like Stratechery Publication and Newsletter, which is members only, so eating my own dog
0: food very much. Oh, so we can subscribe to it. Yeah, so that's
1: that's on rediverge.com. Right now it's uh, early access beta pricing, which is... I think it's, I have to double check now. <laughs> I think it's $5 a month. Or if you're like, hmm, this seems good, $20 for a whole year. But that pricing is going to go up as soon as uh, the early early slots kind of sell out. So I'm establishing an early audience and then I'll, I'll put the prices up after that. But I'm using it as a way kind of to do all the things we've been talking about for the last hour. So be able to publish more openly, more freely, share more about the kind of behind the scenes of Ghost, behind the scenes of running a remote, independent business and uh, publish for a smaller audience, where you can kind of you can you can talk more freely and talk about the realities without the kind of fear of uh, public judgment of all of Twitter. Right, right. So it's it's a really cathartic exercise for me and being able to to write more openly again and for a really specific audience of people who are interested in this type of stuff. So if you're Very interested, cool. that's that's the best place to find what I'm up to right now.
0: All right. Thanks so much, John. Pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you took the time to reach out to John and let him know. You can find him at rediverge.com or on Twitter at John O'Nolan. Also, if you're interested in my thoughts and takeaways from this episode, you should subscribe to the Andy Hackers podcast newsletter. That's over at indiehackers.com slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time.